this is part two of The Station Strangler. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to go back and do so before continuing. Last week, we covered a series of murders from 1986 to 1992, and I told you about 10 young boys who were raped and strangled before being dumped in various sites near the train stations and in the sand dunes of Mitchell's Plain. We also talked briefly about the community's rising fear, the political landscape, and all of this against the already tense backdrop of the dying days of apartheid. A warning here that we will be dealing with death and sexual violence, so please bear this in mind before listening. And as with last week's episode, I am going to preface this by acknowledging that we have too little detail on the lives of the victims, who they were. I have tried to provide any detail I can. In a bonus episode for my Patreon members, I have recorded a conversation with my friend, journalist Natasha Joseph, about the failings of the media in these instances, how the salacious details can be, in her words, like catnip to journalists, and how the victim stories, the stories of secondary victims, the families, the loved ones, can all be lost in the reporting. That's just one of the topics that Tash and I cover in this chat. I will play a short clip from that conversation later, but I'm afraid the majority of it is for patrons only. Speaking of which, we have two new awesome members of the Patreon Club to welcome and thank. Firstly, Roxanne Joseph of the Clan Joseph Journalists. Rox, thank you so much. And Sandra and Gwena, thank you for signing on and your continuous support of me. I will work very hard at trying to live up to your red-handed informed expectations. And we can chat about how far short of those I fall over a glass of wine when you're next in town. Till then... This is episode 11 of It Happened Here, The Station Strangler, many more to come. In early 1994, there had been a gap of over two years since the disappearance of any young boys had been definitively linked to the so-called Station Strangler. But soon we would learn that the nightmare was far from over. In January, just a single month, the bodies of 11 raped and murdered young victims would be found. This is what's known as the Month of Horror. On January 13th, the body of an unidentified person, age estimated at between 14 and 25, is found. Some sources refer to this victim as a boy, others as a man, because of that wide age range given. This person sadly remains unidentified, as does the next boy found on January 17th. This one, however, comes with a chilling promise. A note was found with the body. It read, Number 14, many more in store, and it was signed, Station Strangler. On January 20th, the body of Alino Sprinkle, 11, was found. Alino had been missing for 15 days after two friends of his said that they were approached by five men, one of whom restrained Alino with a rope and dragged him away. 
I've also read that a note was found with Alino's body, but I haven't been able to find the contents of that note published. Alino was found on the corner of Veltafreden Road and Westport Drive, not far from the Mitchell's Plain wastewater treatment site. Alino had been left lying face down, his head in the sand, with a white t-shirt tied around his neck. The next little suburb over to the east is Beacon Valley. It is where Alpine Primary School is, and we'll talk about that school a little later, so just stick a pin in that for now. I've actually added location links to the sources list and show notes this week, so if you feel you want to orientate yourself and see how close some of these spots are, you can do so through those links. Beacon Valley is where nine-year-old Donovan Swartz was from. Donovan went missing on January 3rd. Sadly, his little body would be one of the toll of the month of horror. He was found on January 25th, also lying on his stomach, face buried in the sand, hands tied behind his back. His pants and underpants had been removed, and his skull fractured. He was found in the bushes near Valtafreden. On the same day, the body of another nine-year-old would be found, Jeremy Benjamin. Jeremy had been missing for over a month, and he was found in the same position, hands tied behind his back. There was a pocket knife still stuck in his little arm where he'd been stabbed. He is by official counts the 14th victim, but assuming the writer of the note found on January 13th knew what he was talking about, he would have been actually victim 17. The next day, January 26th, the body of Jeremy Smith, 11, was found. He'd disappeared from Rocklands just two days prior. Again, found lying in the same position, but this time, one of his ears had been cut off. Also, because Jeremy Smith had been found so soon after his death, forensics were able to find blood and semen at the site. Imagine, if you can, the state of your community at this stage. It has been 13 days with six bodies turning up and the return of an MO you haven't seen for two years and had hoped never to see again. People began to organise themselves into groups to patrol streets to search the dunes. Angry crowds shouted at and spat at policemen The army came rolling in in their huge armoured vehicles, the ones that you, as a person of colour, had spent your life fearing. Helicopters hovered to help cover the mass of ground, kicking the sand up while you and everyone you know combed the dunes. I have a few photos of the searches and the removal-slash-retrieval of bodies, and I'll put a few of these up on social media. You'll get a sense from these pictures of the thick beach sand and the scrubby greenery of these sites. I've tried to describe these dunes in the first part of this case, how atmospheric they are, even in the middle of the day. Something about the way the wind tears into the area, the air thick with sea spray and salt. If you're there when the southeaster blows, sand settles in your ears, your nose. It gives everything from your eyelids to your gums, a gritty feel. But looking at the photos of the search, 
What strikes me this time is not the scenery, but the sheer number of people. The police and the army were out in numbers, yes, but there are hundreds of ordinary people, residents of the Cape Flats, digging through the ground with their bare hands in some cases and following in the wake of the covered stretches. Some of the searchers are young, just kids themselves, and others are probably parents and grandparents. When you see these posts on our Instagram, zoom in and look out for the young women in blue curlers, for children in school uniform. There's a woman carrying a baby on her hip, someone in a dressing robe, another in a cleaner's uniform. Many of the people are holding or covering their noses to escape the stench, made all the worse for the summer heat. These images are unlike anything I've seen as a true crime junkie. The proximity of people and victims' bodies. Victims who many of these people likely knew or had at the least seen around. I'm going to play a short clip from a BBC News insert on the case. It's on YouTube, so you can see it for yourself, and I will link it in the show notes with all the other sources. In the background of the clip, towards the end, you can hear the sounds of people talking behind the reporter. There's been a major police response to one of history's worst cases of serial killing. But the people of Mitchell's Plain aren't concerned about what's happened in Russia, America or in Britain. The gruesome sight of the bodies of youngsters being unearthed from shallow graves has enraged locals. Most of the victims have been sodomized and strangled. That man must, must be caught somewhere. Somewhere he must be. Because I don't think he's, I think he's a sick man. Could have been my children. And I think this man must be brought to justice. Some residents have already set up vigilante groups, having heard that the killer left behind a chilling note on the body of one of his victims, saying, one more, many more in store. Those men in the background that you can hear, they're brandishing machetes, and the anger is written in deep lines on their face and in the way they hold themselves. In another clip from ITV News, you can see hundreds of people clamouring around a policeman who is trying to make a statement and answer some questions. If you were unfamiliar with this case before now, you don't need to look beyond those images and these clips to understand the significance of this case to the community and to South Africa in general. January 27th, 1994 was an unthinkable day a day when five more bodies would be found. Neville Samai was the first. He had been missing 20 days. He lay with his blue jersey tied tightly around his neck, his tracksuit pants pulled off. There was no shirt or shoes found, and his body had been half obscured by a discarded mattress left in the bush. There was also a half-completed crossword puzzle from the Afrikaans magazine Heisgenut, found at the site. Marcelino Cupido was 10 when he'd gone missing in December 1993. He was reportedly offered money by a stranger to come help him. Five weeks later, he was the second little boy found that day. Eight-year-old Fabian Wilmore and 11-year-old Owen Hofmeister had gone missing together on January 10th when they were travelling together to Owen's mom in Heidefeld. 
Fabian was described by his granny in a Cape Times article I read as a witty little boy who always did well at school. Their bodies were found close together on the 27th. They'd likely been killed together too, both strangled with pieces of clothing. And the final body on January 27th was a 13-year-old, bound in thick rope, fully dressed but with his underpants next to the body, suggesting he'd been redressed after his assault. He also remains unidentified. He's known simply as John Doe number 5 in this case, which is one of the most awful things I've ever had to write or say. But thank all the gods, that is the end of January 27th. There is one more murder though, my lovelies, one more to get through. That is Elroy van Royen, who went missing on March 11th. Elroy and his cousin Reno, both aged 10, were at the grocery store in Strand. They were hoping to earn some pocket money by helping shoppers push their trolleys, and they were approached by a man who offered them 10 rand to help him carry boxes, a ruse we've sadly heard before. They head off in the direction of the train station, but Reno starts to get scared. The boxes they are carrying appear to be empty, and he's wondering why. Reno gets spooked, and he pulls ripcord, but Elroy stays. He's actually seen later by a friend on a train, seemingly alone, but he never makes it home that night or the next day. And eight days later, his body is found head down in the sand, his arms tied behind his back, and strangled with his own tracksuit pants. Elroy is the last confirmed or 22nd canonical victim of the station strangler. It's his smiling face, his dimples and shining eyes that are forever associated with this case in publications, which seems like a heavy burden for his family. The rub, however, is that it's also his case, only his, of all the victims, that will ever be presented in court, and for which someone will be convicted. Now let's get into identifying and tracking down that someone. The investigation of the Station Strangler murders has been going on since about 1986, so it's eight years at this point. It's had various chiefs and experts in consultations. In 1994, a task force of the Peninsula Murder and Robbery Unit were running the show. In January, they established a mobile unit in Mitchell's Plain, and they took a dedicated space in the local police station from which to coordinate things. The FBI and Interpol had been called in, and the police were working with both international and local psychologists to create a profile of the man responsible something that would have been pretty innovative for the time, especially in South Africa, and deeply weird for some of the old-school cops. The most key of these external consultants is arguably Mickey Pistorius. Mickey is a well-known name to South African true crime followers, and this is the case that put her on the map, so to speak. Her dissertation on The Strangler not the original profile, the dissertation written after his arrest, etc., is still online. I have put a link to that. In March 1994, the police released Mickey's profile to the press and public. This was, and I hate to use this word in 2021, 
but this was an unprecedented move for South African police. The profile said the killer would likely be between 25 and 37 years old and bilingual and probably coloured as he didn't stick out in the community in which he operated. He'd have a middle-class job, like a policeman or priest or teacher, and because of his job, he has time in the afternoons to hang out where his targets hang out, like the arcades and rail stations. Mickey suggested that he'd be gay, single or divorced, and probably still living with his family. She said it was likely that he may have been sexually abused in his youth. He would be a bit of a loner, she said, although she didn't rule out him having an accomplice. She talks about someone who is above average intelligence, an organised killer, who may keep clippings of the news coverage of the murders. She also suggested that the community should cast their minds back to December and January and think if anyone they knew had shown signs of change in behaviour during this time. The psychologists and consultants worked with the police on a list of questions for witnesses and for suspects, and the police also increased the reward, first to 100,000 and then again, with the help of a grocery chain, to 250,000 rand. In response, the police received hundreds of tips. People were calling in with their suspicions, with sightings. The news clippings of the time say that several people's diaries or journals were turned over, presumably when a suspicious loved one went digging and found nasty details. There was another incident where members of the public spotted a boy travelling with a young man in a car and decided he was being abducted. They rushed the car and police had to intervene urgently. But when news got out that a suspect was now in police custody, as they thought was the case, the growing crowd turned on the police station, lobbing bricks through the windows and demanding that the man be brought out to them. This person was ultimately cleared of suspicion, but not before the station was trashed and tens of people injured in the crush when police used non-deadly force to disperse them. Alroy's little cousin and an eyewitness who had observed the two of them at the shops that day with the trolleys, both of them were brought in and a refined new identikit drawn up and distributed, this time showing a man with facial scarring and wide-set eyes. In the end, however, the biggest and most consequential leap would be made by a healthcare worker, a nurse. Someone started to ask questions about the sad man with a scarred cheek who had been a regular visitor to their mental health facility in the leafy suburbs of Kenilworth. They took those concerns to the cops, and this is how Norman Simons would come into the spotlight for these crimes. On the 13th of April, 1994, literally two weeks before our first national democratic elections, Norman is officially arrested. The next day, he is identified via police identity parade by the woman from the shops, who said he looked a lot like the man she had seen. This witness is a pivotal player, but there are some discrepancies between the person she described and the person she would later identify, specifically around the, the length of this person's hair, and this will come up in the court case. 
And as Nicole points out in a True Crime South Africa episode, they broke protocol in paying the reward before Norman was convicted, giving the witness a lot of incentive to stand her ground even when these discrepancies became wider known. Norman's arrest was both massively welcome to the community of Mitchell's Plain and a bombshell. He had been a well-liked man, a teacher at Alpine Primary School. He was a youth volunteer at his church. He had a girlfriend and friends. Surely, this smart, beloved teacher couldn't be the monster they'd all feared for so many years. As part of my research for this case, I spoke to someone I know called Candace Kemp who grew up in this area. We were actually chatting a couple of months ago about a different story when she told me about her memories of the station strangler and I asked her to repeat those for me. As you know, my my great granny, they were, what do you call it, displaced, forcibly removed, whatever we use the term. And they were thrown into Lavender Hill. And then from there, my mother and my father met. And they lived in a caravan park uh, by Freigrond. Freigrond Caravan Park. And from there, they got property and in Mandalay, which was in Mitchell's Plain, not far from Alpine Primary. So we would walk to school every day, my brother and myself. What's the age gap between you and your brother? Four years. He's the oldest. So what years were you at Alpine? I remember leaving Mitchell's Plain when I was standard four. So we relocated back to to Steenburg when mm. I was standard four. Which would have been like 96, uh, eh? Yeah. So did Mr. Simons teach you and your brother at different times? Mr. Simons taught my brother. I, what I remember about Mr. Simons is um, he would pinch, he would hit girls here. That's corporal punishment and pinch the boys between the legs. That was that was um, a thing that went around. Now a lot of the kids knew that about it. Really, um, it's scary to imagine how inappropriate that is now through these grown-up eyes. Yeah. And back then it was just like you don't want to be pinched blue and hit blue. <laughs> and it was very well spoken though. It was a, like a nice teacher. I don't know if you should say nice teacher. You know, when you're a kid, you think nice teacher. Yeah, because he was quite young as well. I think he seemed to sort of bond with his students because... Yeah, was- well-dressed, very nice, smelled nice all the time as well. Like expensive cologne perfume. Like you can smell the money on something. Like you can just smell expensive. You know you can smell expensive perfume. Very intelligent. Very intelligent man. Like you always wanted to learn from him. Very clever. And he never gave you guys any like scary vibes except for the corporal punishment. No. um, My brother had a run in with him. We lived in Mandalay, Montrose, I think it was called Montrose Park. And there was a shop, uh, we call it on the belt, like on a hill. So we would have to walk to the shop. It was actually this one day that my brother asked me to go and steal some chocolates. And that is what I did. And when I came out, my brother was waiting for me. He was talking, he was chatting to Mr. Simons. And Mr. Simons, my brother later told my mother that Mr. Simons offered him a lift home. And then he said, no, I'm here with my sister. Um, 
and I just started approaching. I saw the two of them standing there. So I, I often laugh and, you know, joke with my brother, say you would have been one of those kids, you know, if if I didn't go and steal those chocolates and, you know, you saw me coming towards you, you would have taken that ride home and then you wouldn't have, yeah, you wouldn't have reached home. And I just thought, uh, you know, I was being friendly, going to drop my brother at home. But then you read it back and you and you think of it and you're like, yeah, you really missed it. You really, you, you just sidestepped that whole experience for the whole family. Yes, and the thing is, on record, my brother told me to go and steal it and I always listened to my brother. <laughs> Not long after that, um, I don't know if you know of another story. Uh, we lived opposite a house in Mandalay where the husband had killed his wife, cut her open everywhere. She was on the bed and the kids found her. Yeah, it's not long after that that we actually moved. Uh, my mother feared for a life with, you know, my father, and then we moved back. Because during that time, it was a lot of, you know, Mr. Simons, and then um, I think who was still in the area that time? What do you call it? Was it Pagat or it was something yeah. like that? And then after that, it was the the, the murder opposite our house. I remember the, the kids screaming because they came from school. And that must have been horrific to see. I don't know what the argument was about, but, you know, my mother decided right there and then, mm-mm, I'm getting out of this marriage also and, and leaving. So it was pretty hectic, you know, that time. All these, these, I think people were just angry in general. The colored people in that community were just angry in general, taking it out on each other as well. But it also makes sense to me. It was a very transitional time with a lot of fear and uncertainty because yeah. of the political tensions. Yeah, and you know, like like I told you last time, they still carry, like my mother still carries this this height and this hurt for being taken from the beautiful, uh, they live close to steam, um, what do you call it, Tokai Forest, <laughs> taken from that area and so so I think a lot of people were just like very angry and turned to alcohol also. And, you know, the murders were out of control then as well. Yeah, and that sort of generational pain, right? You know that you're passing on trauma, essentially, from from mom to child and from granny downwards. Yeah, I, don't, I, I think my mother was also young when they moved, like, you know, her memory of where she comes from would be like mine. When I got when I was older, I heard about the station strangler. You you knew that he was, and then you actually started googling it, and then you're like, wow, this this was intense. This human being, and he was a teacher, and you would pass the walls every day, every day. The sort of normalcy of it is is what's really hard. You know, you think about these. These monsters in human form. Plain sight. Did you, were you aware of the rumours that Mr. Simons was not acting alone and that there might be someone else out there who never got punished? No, I didn't know of that. Mm. Do, you, do you remember the feeling in the community after he was arrested? Oh, yeah, my mother was, you know... My mother was crying, I remember that, um, because of he was a teacher and my kids were there and 
that kind of also set my mother on a, a pathway where I told you we didn't leave long after that, the murder and this and that. And then um, I think she was just like my parents in general. My mother was just tired, tired of the, the life that she had to live. And so she brought me. So I think that was like a, a wake up call for many, for many of the, the people in the surrounding area, like trust no one. Because we were all very trusting as youngsters, walking distances, going to the shopping mall, town center. My brother and I went to town center by ourselves as well. She was, I was like 10 and he was 14. What were we thinking? Tell me, do you remember how your family or community felt about the police at that time? Oh, no, they hated the police. They still hate the police. Still. Still. Be, um, like a disregard to them, almost like a distaste. Like, mm. what do you call it? They, they just don't like them in general. Um, I I do have police friends now, though. Like, my mother is warming up. You see, like, with me, it's very different. With my mother, I, I will always speak back to her, my stepfather, because I can see how they react. So my mother doesn't like them in general. But, you know, I, I like to break the mold. So I made policemen friends, and they come to my flat. And she has no other choice but to, you like them as human beings, you just don't like the uniform. Like, I don't know, a lot of the, a lot of the, 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 still the colored children, or, you know, there's a lot of gang violence there by us as well. And they, um, I think it carries over from, from our parents to the youngsters, because for, for the gangsters and the younger children there, they absolutely hate police. It's like, it's almost like they just want to kill these policemen, even though it's your friends, you know, like your friends is just wearing a uniform or that. I don't understand. I understand it's the apartheid, um, the police in the apartheid era, but these are not these people anymore. So it's not that people anymore, but they still carry, the, especially in those communities, like if you ever visit Lavender Hill or, you know, those communities and you speak to those people, you would hear from their mouths the the hatred and the pain that they still feel against police, against the government, against everybody. Everybody that, that put them in these, they call it in these little walkies. Mm. Yeah. Norman was born in 1967, making him 27 at the time of his arrest. He was an incredible fit for Mickey's profile. He spoke some seven languages and had lived in the Eastern and Western Capes for most of his life. His pupils spoke glowingly of him, as did his co-workers and neighbours. But there were some red flags, like the ones that Candace and I talk about, the corporal punishment, the pinching. In custody, Norman initially denied all involvement, but after a few days in detention, he confessed. He was taken out to the dunes by policemen to identify some of the body disposal sites. But he made almost as many errors, as far as we know, as he made factually accurate claims. Despite this, and many other issues brought up in his trial, most of the police on the team and the community never doubted that they had their man. Police Captain Johan Kotzer, who headed the investigation team, told the Associated Press in 1995 that 150 suspects were ruled out before they arrested Norman in April. He said, and I quote, 
The thing that convinced us about him was the fact that not only did he look a lot like the identikit, but the way he reacted when he was questioned about the incidents. He never really denied being involved. End quote. But that's only half true. Norman would make at least two written confessions and recant both. Mickey Pistorius uses a Freudian psychoanalytical framework to analyze Norman in her dissertation, and she talks about this as being evidence of the struggle between his id, ego, and superego selves. She writes, In an interrogation session with a colonel, the subject for the first time introduces the voices of the spirits. The ego, under pressure from the superego, has now progressed from blaming an unknown stranger to admitting that he killed the children, but still refusing to take responsibility, and places the blame on evil spirits and the spirit of his brother inside him. In another later extract, she says, In the case of the subject, the period of confession lasted for six days, with fluctuations of dominance between the ego and id and superego clearly visible. During the court trial, the subject again denied his involvement in the crimes, partly due to the fact that the ego realized that there was a possibility he might be acquitted due to lack of evidence. Even if you're not inclined to the Freudian school of thought, and I personally am not, there's a lot to be gleaned from these. The idea of a man grappling with the case against him, grappling with exhaustion and some pretty dark demons, and trying to ascertain what he can get away with. It speaks to me of a very manipulative personality, fitting the narcissist that I think he was. Another thing I found really interesting in the dissertation is that Norman had been voluntarily admitted for psychiatric care some eight times before his arrest, with a reoccurring diagnosis of depressive disorder. Obviously, please seek the help you need and checking yourself in for care is not a bad thing. I don't want to be accused of suggesting otherwise. That is not my belief. Why I mention it, though, is that Norman had a single hospitalization in 1991, three in 1993, and four in the first four months of 1994, showing a pattern of escalation in line with the killings and perhaps pointing at his deteriorating state of mind. Records from those days, according to Pistorius, have him admitting himself and spending a significant amount of time sleeping, for which he requested sleeping pills. She suggests that these days are a refuge for him, in which he can escape what he's done through sleep and disassociation. And there are also interesting coincidences, if you cross-reference his hospital stays with newspaper reports, as I did, because I have insufficient respect for time, apparently, but if you do that cross-reference between hospital stays and newspaper reports, uh, one really interesting example pops up. Uh, we know that he was in Kenilworth Psychiatric Clinic on the 18th of January, and again on the 2nd of Feb, although it doesn't say how long he stayed in. At the same time, a Cape Times report from January 29th has a story on two boys being approached at Kenilworth Racecourse and a stranger offering them money to help him. The walking route between these two sites 
is less than a kilometer. And if you're still inclined to say it's a coincidence, the fact that the suspect was described as having a scar on his cheek should give you pause. When this case goes to court in 1995, though, they only charge him for the death of Elroy. They present what I would say is a mountain of circumstantial evidence, but there's no smoking gun. And Norman's lawyer, Quislow, does a pretty good job of casting considerable doubt, including a lack of DNA matches and a possible alibi that puts him in Kenilworth Library at 2.30 on the same day as he had supposedly been seen in Strand at 4pm. Quislow contests that it would have been impossible for him to have made that gap in 90 minutes. It's tight, but honestly, having driven it myself, it's very doable. His advocate's passionate defense, though, would not be enough. A judge would find Norman Simons guilty of the kidnapping and murder of Elroy van Royen and sentence him to 35 years. It was far too little for many, many people, and there were protesters calling for his death outside the court that day. Here again, the timing of this case, at the beginning of South Africa's journey as a constitutional democracy, is significant. The death penalty was outlawed literally weeks before Norman's sentencing. In 1998, the Bloemfontein High Court of Appeal rejected Norman's appeal and increased his sentence to life. There is so much more that I want to tell you about this case about who Norman was, but it is late. Literally, it's 2am, and this episode is also very late. I never intended to make this three parts, so I'm going to put together a part 2B, let's call it. Just a short rundown of some of the threads that I couldn't fit into this episode, and I won't make you wait till next week. I'll get that up in the next day or so. But I'm going to play out with a clip from that chat with Tash that I mentioned earlier, talking specifically about how convinced Norman's advocate was of his innocence. At that point, I kind of knew that I knew Kurslow's son, Chris, mm-hmm. from Varsity. And Chris was either in your journalism class or a year or two below you. His dad represented Simons. And apparently wholly believed in his innocence. To the end. Chris died a few years ago. Here's the kicker. Simons was released on bail at some point. Yes. After being arrested. Yeah. Where could he go? If he'd gone back to Mitchell's plane, he would have been torn torn to pieces. He had nowhere to go. And so he moved into the Lowe's house in Rondebosch, uh, probably about 150 metres from Rondebosch Boys. And Chris was 10 at the time. That's how much his father believed and his client's innocence. They used to play cricket in the back garden. My mind was completely blown at the thought that somebody could have so much faith that they would move Mm. a potential murderer of children... Yeah, that's terrifying. ...into their house with their 10-year-old son. And potential rapist of children, of boys. And I've often wondered what the parents of Rondebosch boys would have made of Norman Simon's so close by in a back garden playing cricket of an afternoon. 
As I have expressed before, I am not attempting to defend Norman Simons. I do believe, I absolutely believe that he was in fact responsible for a lot of the killings that have been lumped under the title The Station Strangler. Uh, I just thought this was the most fascinating anecdote. Thanks again for listening, and I promise that part 2B will come out ASAP. Until then, cheers.